Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Before we begin, a quick note. Today's episode focuses on a temple. And we talk a lot about art, architecture, and divine imagery. As you can guess, there is a lot of visual material to go along with that. If you'd like to see that material as you listen, you can find it on Patreon. With every new episode of the show, I release a special PDF booklet of photos, along with notes about the content, and even translations of ancient texts. The booklet for this episode is especially big, over a hundred pages long, full of 4K photographs, extensive notes, and plenty of information. You can find the episode, and the booklet, at patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. Thank you. Iri Nini in Chen. I make a welcome for you. This is the History of Egypt podcast, episode 186, Seti in Abydos. Part 1. Today, we visit one of Egypt's most beautiful and enduring monuments. The great temple of Seti I at the town of Abydos marks the pharaoh's contribution to the religion of Osiris. Seti's temple at Abydos is one of the great tourist destinations in the country. Buses will often take day trips up from Luxor to visit this temple and others along the way. And people who visit the country often say that the Abydos temple is one of the most interesting and beautiful of monuments. Today, we'll start to understand why. This episode is part one in our exploration of the monument. Seti's temple at Abydos is a massive topic, and even Egyptologists struggle to understand the full complexities of the monument. For one thing, the temple itself is well-preserved, and the decoration is beautiful, so there is a lot to talk about in terms of art, architecture, and ancient worship. But the temple also has some unusual features, innovations and additions to the standard design of sacred spaces. These make Seti's temple an incredibly complex structure. To avoid religion overload, we will visit this temple in stages. Let's begin. Around 1300 BCE, the Kingdom of Egypt was ruled by Seti I. The son of Ra, Men Ma'at Ra, had been the king for a few years now, and he had already established himself as an active and powerful ruler. As a leader, Seti is renowned for his building projects. The monuments he commissioned appear up and down the Nile Valley, and they are some of the most beautiful in the country. We have already visited one of Seti's monuments, the great hypostyle hall at Karnak. But the one I'm about to describe is special. Early in his reign, Seti began working on a new temple. A monument in southern Egypt would provide a sanctuary for one of Egypt's greatest gods. Seti commissioned this temple at Abydos. Abydos, or Abju in Egyptian, is a truly ancient site. Archaeologists working in this region have found remains going as far back as 3 to 4,000 BCE. The area was important as one of the early centres of royal authority when the kingdom was first developing. At Abydos, you will find the tombs of some of Egypt's first kings, legendary figures who have appeared in our story before. The necropolis at Abydos contains the burial sites of kings like Scorpion, Horus Aha, the queen Meri Nif, King Jer, and Kasa Kemwi. There are also monuments of more recent rulers, like Senusaret III of the 12th dynasty, the shadowy rulers of the Second Intermediate Period, including Seneb Kai, whose tomb was discovered in 2014, and most recently, the founder of the 18th dynasty, Amosa I, 
had commissioned his own tomb within this region. Basically, Abydos is one of the most important centres for royal authority and the worship of Egypt's kings. Going right back to the beginnings of their state, this area had become a holy site for burials, worship, and memorials. Abydos itself is particularly sacred to the god Osiris. Osiris, or Wesir in Egyptian, is, again, a truly ancient figure. His origins are a point of debate for Egyptologists. Some view him as a historical king around whom myths and legends developed. Others see him as a symbol of fertility and vegetation, a being who represented the natural cycle and the order of life. Whatever his exact origins, Osiris slowly developed into a powerful figure among the Egyptian gods. His primary role was the foremost of Westerners, or Kenti Ementiu. In other words, he was the king of the dead, the souls who dwelled beyond the western horizon, in a land that Osiris ruled. Osiris was a dead god, sort of. In ages past, Osiris had died at the hands of his brother, Seth, but thanks to the magics of Isis and other beings, Osiris had returned to life, resurrected in a new role, and as the king of the dead, Osiris watched over the souls of the ordinary people. And he also represented the lineage of pharaohs. An important aspect of the Osiris story is how it reflects upon the world of the living. When Osiris died and went to the underworld, it left a power vacuum within Egypt. Ultimately, Osiris's son, Horus, ascended the throne and became the eternal king of the land. Among humans, every pharaoh embodied the power of Horus, the son of Osiris, and during their lifetimes they ruled Egypt, as the god was supposed to do. But of course, every pharaoh was a mortal human. No matter their power or innate divinity, their body would eventually fail, and their soul would travel west. When that happened, each pharaoh transformed from Horus into the role of Osiris. As a result, the great king of the dead became a representative or symbol of every ruler that had ever lived. The long ancestry of the pharaohs, stretching back thousands of years, was embodied in this deity. As you can imagine, that made Osiris particularly important for the pharaohs. During their lifetimes, they would honour this god so that their fathers or ancestors could receive the proper offerings and nourishment. And, in turn, they could hope to live forever within the kingdom of Osiris, enjoying their royal authority for eternity. These were the traditions that shaped the worship of Osiris. The king of the dead, who dwelled beyond the western horizon, held power over the natural world, especially the cycle of growth, life, and death. And over the centuries, Osiris had come to represent the long lineage of the ancestors, in particular, the ancestors of the pharaohs. By 1300 BCE, the religion of Osiris was one of the most important in the kingdom. The Egyptians are famous for having thousands of gods, but certain beings are more prominent or visible than others. Osiris is one of these, a deity who appears in many temples throughout the land, receiving offerings from the king and praises from the living Horus. But while you could worship him anywhere, Osiris was especially prominent at Abydos. Since ancient times, Abydos had been the sacred realm of Osiris. The god had a temple at Abydos village, but around 1300 BCE, Seti I decided to build a new one. Early in his reign, Seti began work on a magnificent structure. A new temple at Abydos would honour the deity Osiris, and several others. Seti's temple is a fascinating monument. On the one hand, some parts of it are quite traditional, following classic models and designs. But Seti also innovated. He added new features to the architecture of the monument, and he redesigned some older elements. The temple is a mix of old and new in the best sense, and by exploring it, you can get a sense of the pharaoh's mindset from 3,000 years ago. 
Today, most tourists visit Abydos by bus. Whether they are coming from Luxor or arriving on a cruise ship, they come westward from the Nile. Driving to Abydos is a fun experience. The modern village surrounds you as you go. The main road is busy, but rural. Freight trains trundle past carrying loads of sugarcane. Three-wheeler motorbikes with flatbed trailers carry livestock, people, and all kinds of products. The road is bumpy and rough, but it's a pleasant drive. And soon enough, the village begins to dwindle. The desert is visible on the horizon. And before too long, you'll arrive at a building. Your bus will stop outside a magnificent structure. It stands tall on a podium, its facade decorated with columns. In the front, a pair of obelisks rise high, decorated with hieroglyphs and kings. Flagpoles tower overhead, and the building itself glitters thanks to high, shining windows. This building is a hotel, the House of Life Hotel. It has 44 rooms, an enormous pool, and the public spaces are designed to resemble a temple. The House of Life Hotel offers spa treatments and healing retreats. Each room comes with modern amenities, and it's a wonderful stay at any time of the year. Sorry about that, I got distracted. The House of Life Hotel is a genuinely nice stay, I like it a lot. But we're not here for the imitation temple, we're here for the real thing. Just up the road from the House of Life is the true star of Abydos village. The temple of Seti I rises majestically on the edge of the desert. Today, the temple facade is incomplete. There is supposed to be a wall and pylon gateways hiding the temple from view. Alas, those sections are long gone, collapsed from erosion and robbed of their stone. So when you visit the temple today, you are only seeing half of the original structure. The modern facade is kind of exposed. Exiting your transport, you have arrived at Abydos. Let's orient ourselves quickly and get a sense of the temple overall. Then we can dive into the details with a better sense of place. When you arrive at Abydos temple, you are confronted by an imposing monument. The temple itself is far back from the road, and when you see it in the distance, the facade gives a distinctive impression. The square columns throw shadows over the temple front, and the doorways behind those columns are dark, mysterious. The effect is powerful. Compared to the more overbearing grandeur of Karnak or Luxor, the Temple of Abydos is quite different. It has a quiet, shadowy majesty. You arrive in a car park that leads to a visitor's centre. Inside, you can see maps of the Abydos region, designed by archaeologists to show all the monuments of the area. There is a little tea room that sells guidebooks, and the Egyptian-style coffee is pretty decent. Then, after a quick stop at the washroom, you emerge into the bright sun. The temple is ahead. You approach Seti's monument from the east. The edifice rises up the hill towards the west. Today, this area is exposed, drenched in sunlight, and dry. 3,000 years ago, things were quite different. Originally, the temple had a harbour at its entrance. An artificial waterway connected to the Nile allowed ships to deliver supplies, personnel, and visitors. You can still see that harbour today, sort of. When you leave the visitor's centre, the ground level is much lower than the temple, and an area of low, muddy soil fronts the precinct. That is the location of the ancient waterway. There are traces of the stone quays fronting the harbour. Once upon a time, the front of Seti's temple was a busy waterside dock. Thronged with boats, the area would have bustled with porters, scribes, and pilgrims. Today it's silent, except for the distant rumble of traffic and the shouts of local children saying hello. But the dark soil beneath your feet reminds us of ancient lives. Leaving the harbour, you start going uphill. Stone ramps and stairs lead towards the temple. The monument itself perches atop platforms, lifting it above the harbour. That may sound strange. Why not build the temple further back on flat ground? Well, it has to do with the symbolism of Egyptian temples. Very briefly, the architecture of these temples replicated an idea. 
This idea was the primeval mound, the first piece of earth that emerged from the infinite waters before creation. In short, an Egyptian temple represented the beginning of the universe, earth and reality emerging from the cosmic ocean. To capture that idea physically, temples like Seti's tend to stand on hills or artificial platforms, so as you approach the building, the ground level rises like the slopes of a mound. It is easy to miss today, but as you head up towards the temple, you are climbing the hill of creation. To your left and right, the front part of the temple presents a pair of courtyards. Wide, square spaces open to the sun stand in front of the temple. Originally, these courts were surrounded by high stone walls and massive pylons or towers which guarded the entrance. Today, only the foundations of these walls remain. Archaeologists have found some of the stone that lined these courts, and they have re-erected them in their original locations. Alas, most of that stone is gone, dragged away by locals and labourers over thousands of years. Today, the temple courtyards have lost much of their original grandeur. One feature that does survive is the washing station. When you enter the first courtyard, a pair of wells stand to each side of the path. These are for purification, to wash the dirt, literal and spiritual, off your hands, feet, face and arms. Today, the wells are broken and full of sand. But if we imagine ourselves in antiquity, we can take a moment to make a purification, or sawab in Egyptian. Having done that, we are ready to approach the temple, in a proper state of cleanliness. As you walk through the two courts, you'll notice stone blocks with decoration and hieroglyphs. These are not the product of Seti's regime. King Seti died before the courtyards were constructed, and it fell to his son, Ramesses, to organise the completion of this area. The courts and pylons were always part of the plan, Egyptian temples include these as a standard component, but when you look around at the blocks, the hieroglyphs and art all belong to Ramesses II. The same is true of the temple façade. As you approach the building itself, you are confronted by a line of square columns. Originally, these columns were a hidden inner part of the temple precinct, but since the pylons and courts have collapsed, this is now the front of the monument. The columns tower overhead imposingly, and on their surface you will see figures of the deities and the pharaohs. Great gods like Osiris, Isis, Horus, Ra Horakti, Ptah, Thoth or Jehuti, and Khnum adorn the front of the temple. Beside those gods you will also find two kings. Images of pharaohs appear on the walls. Some of the figures are Seti I, and others are his son, Ramesses II. Again, this part of the temple was decorated after Seti had died, and Ramesses seems to have finished it according to his father's plans. The images are colourful and beautiful in their own way, but again, they are a product of the next regime. Still, recognition to Ramesses. This decoration is lovely. Of course, it's nothing to what is waiting inside. At last, you reach the doors of the temple. You are leaving the bright, sunny world of the courtyards, and now the sanctuaries are waiting. As you cross the threshold, the gods and kings watch from the walls. The sunlight diminishes. The darkness looms. Inward you go. As you enter the temple proper, you are walking into a forest. A great hypostyle hall, a hall of columns, stretches to your left and right. There are 24 of these columns, grouped together in squares. They tower overhead, and the top of each column represents a bud of papyrus. The buds are closed, because the roof blocks out all sunlight. And so, leaving the sunny world of humanity and nature, you get a sense of entering the darker, closed space of the gods. Under normal circumstances, a temple would have one hypostyle hall near the front of the building. 
But Seti's monument has two hypostyle halls, one behind the other. The first hall, the one you enter from the outside world, is separated from the second by a thick wall of stone. That seems curious. Why build two halls instead of one? Well, this is where we touch on the first major innovation of Seti's temple. It has to do with the shrines. At a basic sense, an Egyptian temple is the house of a particular god. Whether it is Amun-Ra, Ra-Horakti, Ptah, Osiris, Thoth, Hathor, or Mut, an Egyptian temple should have a shrine for the deity who rules this space. Conventionally, an Egyptian temple would have certain architectural features. It would have a gateway or pylon, a courtyard, a hypostyle hall, and then the shrine. Whichever deity lived in the temple, that god would have their shrine at the back and centre of the building. And under normal circumstances, the architects would surround that shrine with different rooms, blocking it from view and hiding it from the outside world. But Seti's temple does something different. You see, this temple does not have one shrine for one deity. Instead, his monument has seven. As you go deeper into the building, you leave the first hypostyle hall and enter the second. Ahead, to the west, you will find seven doors equally spaced along the wall. These doors each lead to a small, self-contained chamber. These chambers are the shrines, dedicated to different gods. The seven shrines are devoted to major deities of the Egyptian pantheon. These include Horus, Isis, and Osiris, the trinity of Abydos, and it also includes Amun-Ra, Ra-Horakti, and Ptah, the three creator gods who ruled the major cities of Thebes, Heliopolis, and Memphis. Finally, the seventh chapel is dedicated to Seti himself. So we have a whole suite devoted to different gods and to the ruling pharaoh. This is interesting. Conventionally, a temple had one major shrine devoted to the god of that sanctuary. And Seti's temple at Abydos is supposed to be devoted to Osiris, right? So why does he include all of these other deities? Why are there additional shrines? The short version is that, as part of his religious project, Seti wasn't creating a temple just for Osiris. Instead, he was creating a temple for all of Egypt's major deities. These chapels represented the primary lords of creation, the gods who ruled across the land and dominated certain places. Each of them would get their own shrine in this one temple. In effect, Seti was concentrating the religions of several major deities within a single building. Here, the king's priests could simultaneously honour every ruling god on behalf of their pharaoh. Doing that, they could bring the god's blessings to Seti's body and soul. Again, this is complicated, and I'll come back to it later. But the idea seems to be a temple for all of the creator deities, who, with their powers combined, would bless the captain, I mean king, Seti I. So, seven chapels devoted to six major deities and the pharaoh himself. This is one of the unique features of Seti's monument at Abydos. In case you are wondering, the six deities, each with their own chapel, are not the only gods that appear in the temple. In fact, throughout this monument, the walls are covered with different gods and goddesses. Besides the major creators whom we just referenced, there are gods like Hathor, Sakhmet, Anubis, Mut, and Thoth, all of whom give their protection and love to Seti. There are also fertility deities like Min and Hapi, the lord of the Nile flood, who appear to guarantee Egypt's natural prosperity. And the great deities themselves come together in different groups to bless Seti and to give him their powers. So there are seven chapels devoted to major figures, but across the walls of those chapels and the rest of the temple, there are dozens of other gods, goddesses, and religious symbols. If you're there in person, the effect can be quite overwhelming. And that's with the benefit of modern lighting and technology. You can imagine 3,000 years ago, 
when light was provided by candles or torches, and when the air was filled with the smoke of incense, these shadowy, flickering deities must have seemed alive on the walls. Today, Seti's temple has lost a lot of its original mystique. Electric lighting floods the walls, and tourists wander through in a steady trickle of visitors. To the casual observer, the temple may not seem that important. But I have noticed that the temple is actually still a place of veneration for locals. On multiple occasions when I'm walking through the monument, I have noticed a local person visiting one of the shrines. They are often there to pray, clutching rows of beads in their hands which they work through their fingers, and they speak quietly to themselves, wishing for whatever it is they are seeking. Although Egypt is now a majority Muslim country, the temple of Seti at Abydos still seems to have local value and resonance, and locals still visit to seek blessings or insights from the great beings of the cosmos. It's one of my favourite features of the Abydos temple. The seven chapels, each dedicated to a different being, provided a focal point for the priests. Today, these chapels are open, but originally they had doors. Wooden barriers would hide the gods' statues within each sanctuary, and only the priests or the king was allowed to enter. The gods' chapels would act as their resting places, their home within the great temple. Here, the golden statues, in portable shrines, would represent the body of the deity. And every day, priests would come to bring food, drink, clothing, and prayer. Inside the chapels, you'll find the walls covered in texts and images. Delicately carved scenes show the pharaoh, Seti, appearing before the gods. He opens their shrines, makes offerings, tends to their needs, and receives their blessings. The images vary from chapel to chapel, but they do have a logic. Egyptologist Rosalie David studied this temple for her PhD thesis, and she has published a magnificent book on the Temple Ritual of Abydos. David has observed patterns and systems in the art and the texts. The short version of her argument is that throughout these seven chapels, you will find scenes of the daily ritual. The hieroglyphs record the speeches and prayers that the priests would recite for the gods. The artistic scenes show the steps of each ritual and the actions involved. And when they are read in the correct order, these images guide the worshipper, the priest or the king, through the proper care of the deity. The ritual is complicated. David has identified at least 46 chapters corresponding to a different action, offering, or rite. I won't go through all of them, but very briefly, here are some of the major steps. To conduct the daily rituals of a god's statue, the priest, or king, would do the following. 1. Approach the doors of the chapel, from the second hypostyle hall. 2. Recite prayers as they open those doors and enter the god's sanctuary. 3. Burn incense to purify the air and awaken the gods' senses, attracting the divine spirit into their statue. 4. Take care of the statue's body. Remove its clothes, wipe off the oils and incense that you used the day before, and wash the statue with water. 5. Apply new oils and perfumes for the gods' pleasure. 6. Bring linen in different colours and clothe the god in new garments. 7. Pour water and offer natron, or purifying salts, to cleanse the chapel of any uncleanliness. 8. Offer water and food to nourish the god, and jewellery to adorn their visage. 9. Burn incense around the statue and the room, cleansing the air once more. 10. Offer prayers as you begin to leave the chapel. 11. Walk backwards away from the god, using the frond of a palm tree to wipe away your footprints. 12. Recite further prayers as you close the chapel doors. 13. Finish, and repeat again tomorrow. That is a very brief summary, but the full thing would take an entire episode. At every stage of this ritual, Hieroglyphs tell us the speeches that a priest or pharaoh should make. 
They describe the actions at the start of each rite, opening the doors, burning the incense, etc. And they also speak directly to the gods, praising them and assuring them that everything is going smoothly. The texts are long, and there are hundreds of them, but here is a tiny selection. Quote, A speech for entering the chapel in order to uncover the face of the god's statue. I have come before you, O deity. Purification or cleanliness is upon my arms. Behold, I am a priest of this temple. I shall not linger. I shall not turn back. I have come to perform the duties. Be assured, I have not come to do that which should not be done. I kiss the ground. My face is bowed. I offer ma'at, order or truth, to its lord, and offerings to its maker. Horus, be purified. Thoth, be purified. O male gods, be purified. O goddesses, be purified. I am offering incense when uncovering the face of the statue. How beautiful to see you. How beautiful to see the flame of the incense burner. Welcome in peace. Awaken in peace, O deity. The incense is satisfactory. Your awakening is satisfactory. And you awaken in satisfaction. End quote. Again, that is just a tiny summary. The seven chapels, with their elaborate decoration and texts, provide a guidebook for worship and daily practice. You might compare these with the famous Book of the Dead, the funerary text that provides a step-by-step instruction for souls traveling to the underworld. Seti's chapels at Abydos provide a similar book for the living, a step-by-step instruction for priests or the king to honor the lords of creation. Conveyed through the hieroglyphs and art, we see the steps necessary to praise an Egyptian god. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The seven chapels provide spaces for the gods' statues. Six of these chapels are practically identical with the same layout and design. But one of them is different. The chapel of Osiris has a different structure. Specifically, it doesn't have a western wall. Each of these shrines has a decoration at the western end, designed to honour the gods and the king. But the Osiris chapel doesn't have a western wall, it has a door. The Osiris Chapel leads to a new suite of rooms, a group of chambers that are hidden at the back of the temple and only accessible from this shrine. This suite of rooms is unique among Egyptian temples, at least for this time. Scholars call it the Osiris Complex. The Osiris Complex sits at the very back of Seti's temple. It has four distinct sections. The first is a hall. A long rectangular room stretching from north to south is filled with columns and decorated with scenes of the gods. This is the main space that you enter when you leave the hypostyle halls and come into the Osiris complex. And looking around, it may seem overwhelming or totally unintelligible. The walls are covered in archaic and mysterious scenes. The king makes offerings to a variety of deities, and we see a bewildering array of totems and pillars that Seti makes offerings to, or even raises before the deities. This first hall seems to include a huge range of scenes related to the religion of Osiris specifically, but also his family, Isis, Horus, and other deities associated with him. Along with the art, scholars like Rosalie David have identified the rituals associated with these deities, and also with the region of Abydos generally. The scenes are complicated, and I'll discuss that in a moment. But to give a brief summary, here are some of the highlights. When you first walk into the hall, you are coming from the east. Directly ahead of you, 
the western wall is decorated with scenes of the Abydos gods and the religions associated with it. You find Seti offering to various totems, and in one particularly famous scene, the king leans forward to raise a heavy pillar. Seti is standing before the goddess Isis, and in his arms he clutches a huge totem. This totem looks like the trunk of a tree, but with strange rectangular branches across the top. This is the Jed Pillar, a symbol associated with Osiris. The exact meaning of the Jed Pillar is debated. It might be the god's spine, or it might be a tree in which his body was encased after his death. Different scholars view it differently, but one thing we do know is the Jed Pillar is closely associated with Osiris, and appears to be a sacred part of his tale. Seti lifts the Jed Pillar before the goddess Isis, the consort of Osiris, and the goddess raises her two hands to receive the pillar gratefully from the pharaoh. The meaning here is that Seti is the one who restores Osiris to his consort, Isis. He brings the symbol, or the body of the god, back to its proper place. In other words, Seti is acting like a pious son. He is restoring his father to his place of burial, and he is performing the rituals that allow Osiris to live in eternity. The scene confirms the essential relationship between the reigning pharaoh, Seti, and his eternal ancestor, Osiris. It is an image of simple piety, but it also confirms the eternity and continuity of Egyptian kingship. Just as Osiris was pharaoh in long forgotten ages, now Seti himself participates in that story, as if it is constantly occurring and reoccurring with the natural cycle of life. Basically, Seti raises the Jed pillar or body of Osiris, confirming his place as the one who connects our world with the world of the gods. It is a symbol of religious devotion, and also a confirmation of the pharaoh's divine power. Just next to this image, we find Seti again standing before the Jed pillar. This time, the totem is fully erect, standing on a podium like a statue. Seti has clothed the pillar, it is wearing a kilt or skirt, and Seti offers two pieces of linen. He seems to be in the middle of the ritual of dressing the Jed pillar, or dressing Osiris. So it seems to be a similar process to the ones we described earlier, where the king or priest would enter the chapel to purify, anoint, and clothe the statue of the god. Again, because Osiris represents the royal ancestors, every pharaoh that has ever lived, Seti is offering to his divine father, both in a literal and metaphorical sense. The hieroglyphs convey that idea. They say, quote, giving cloth by the king to his father Osiris, that he will make a given life. The speech by Osiris, who is the Jed pillar, he says, My beloved son, lord of the two lands, Men Ma'atra, O my son Horus, while you exist, your temple is like the sky forever. End quote. A scene like this conveys the essential value of the temple. Seti honors Osiris, he raises his symbols and gives them offerings, and in return, Osiris and all gods will bless Seti with a long life, a long reign, and they will ensure that his temple endures forever. When you look upon the scenes today, which still preserve their brilliant painted colours, you can sort of see that it worked. The other walls of this hall convey similar scenes. The king offers to various deities, like Horus, the son of Osiris. They are beautiful, but elaborate, and I won't go into them here. For now, let's explore the rest of the Osiris complex. When you first enter this area, you come into the great columned hall. On your right, there are three doorways. These doorways, leading north, are chapels. They are chapels to Isis, Osiris, and Horus. These chapels continue the same sort of themes. The king appears before the gods to receive their blessings, to make offerings to them, and to engage in the essential rituals of kingship. Again, the texts and scenes are elaborate and I won't go into them, but these chapels are worth your time because they preserve many of their colours. Beautiful imagery adorns these chapels, and you can see the symbols that are associated with the gods, with the king, and with this ancient religion. 
One thing that is worth noting is the middle chapel. This chapel, officially dedicated to Osiris, is more accurately dedicated to Seti himself as the god Osiris. Egyptologist David O'Connor, who has published extensively on this temple, observes that within this chapel, Seti himself appears in the role of Osiris. The living pharaoh has ascended to his eternal form as the everlasting king of the dead. This isn't just a hypothesis. The hieroglyphs in this chapel spell it out directly. In one scene, the great god Horus appears before an image of Osiris, but the text says, Speech by Horus, who is residing within the temple of Menmaatra, Seti. He speaks to the king, Menmaatra, in the presence of the divine council and the gods of southern and northern Egypt. Horus offers the pure incense, sweet of scent, which is according to the writing that is in the temple library. Horus's two arms, they give these things. Ra, he purifies the king, Menmaatra, Seti, in this place, his house, in this place, his temple, in this place, his districts, which are in southern Egypt, and in his tomb, which is in northern Egypt. Ra purifies the king upon his altars, which are in the sky and which are on earth. This is his temple. End quote. That text makes all sorts of obscure references to places like the temple library, where presumably the religious texts were held. It also refers to the tomb of Osiris, or Seti, as being in the north. This is a mythological reference to the place where Osiris's body washed out to sea, or was collected, reassembled, and buried in the marshes of the delta. It may also be a reference to a town called Busiris, where another temple for the god existed. You don't need to remember any of that, we'll explore it in the future. But suffice to say, the texts within this chapel make it fairly clear that here, the god Osiris and the king Seti I are one and the same being. So right near the entrance of this Osiris complex, we have a special chapel that connects the reigning pharaoh with the eternal lord of the dead. Apparently, Seti was making provisions for his personal afterlife, and also acknowledging a central component of Egyptian religion. When he died, the king would transform from the earthly Horus to the eternal Osiris, and whether for personal, political, or religious reasons, Seti made sure that his memory would be connected with that deity. The three chapels to your right when you enter this complex are some of the most beautiful in the whole temple. On the opposite end of this hall, to the south, there is another suite of rooms. Unfortunately, this part of the complex collapsed in antiquity and was badly damaged, so large sections of the decoration are gone. Today, there are tiny fragments that we can pick out. Apparently, these southern rooms included another set of chapels dedicated to Osiris. But this time, the chapels were not specifically dedicated to the god, but rather they recorded aspects of his story. The surviving portions of the scenes show Seti before the god Osiris, and they also show images of the Osiris tale. In one scene, the god is lying upon a bed, apparently after his death, and this is probably the moment when Isis, in the form of a bird, flew upon the body of Osiris to conceive a new son, Horus, or the king. So these southern chapels are probably associated with the rituals and stories of Osiris. Although they are mostly destroyed today, we can get a sense of this private, secluded area. Put together, these sections, the inner hall, the northern chapels, the southern hall, and the three Osiris chapels, seem to have a clear overall function. But what is that function? These halls are unique to Seti's temple. So why are they here? There are a couple of different interpretations for the Osiris complex. Rosalie David suggests that this suite of rooms was designed to be used in an annual festival. Every year, around the time of the Nile flood, Egyptians of Abydos would celebrate a festival called Koyak. This festival was sacred to Osiris. It involved a reenactment of his story and the legends surrounding the god. Basically, the Koyak festival was the annual honoring of the deity, and priests would make processions from the town of Abydos 
out to the western necropolis in order to honour the god. For Rosalie David, Seti may have intended this suite of rooms to provide a place for Osiris's statue, and for the tools or implements that priests would use during that annual festival. That's a strong interpretation, and based on the imagery and texts around these rooms, it's quite convincing. Another Egyptologist named David O'Connor has a similar interpretation. But unlike David, he puts a greater focus on the king Seti. For O'Connor, these halls are devoted to Osiris and the celebration of that god, but more accurately, they are devoted to Seti as the god Osiris. In this argument, Seti intended these rooms to serve his soul and memory after he passed to the next world. Again, it's a convincing argument, and it actually fits quite nicely with David's interpretation. The honouring of Osiris in an annual festival was an important celebration for the locals and the pious. For a pharaoh like Seti, this may have been an effective way to guarantee his immortality, the sustenance and nourishment of his soul across the millennia to come. Basically, this little suite of rooms at the very back of the temple is a private secluded space devoted to Osiris, but it may also be a space for Seti himself to receive offerings and the prayers of worshippers. Today, the Osiris complex might be the most beautiful section of the temple. Although it collapsed in antiquity, archaeologists have reconstructed the hall and restored the roof. They have cleaned the decorations, removing the soot and layers of grime to reveal the colours beneath. The walls of this hall are damaged, but they still preserve some amazingly vibrant colours and imagery. Around this hall, you can find the pharaoh, Seti, honouring various deities, and conducting rituals that are sacred to Osiris. He raises the Jed Pillar, a symbol of eternity and endurance, which is particularly associated with Osiris. He makes offerings to Isis and Horus, the family of the god, and he celebrates deities and emblems that are particularly associated with this region. In short, the Osiris complex provides a focal point for the cult of this deity. Osiris, Isis, and Horus all receive benefits and worship in this area. And in these halls, you will find the finest quality carvings, vibrant colours, and a beautiful array of images. Truly, it is a masterpiece of ancient work. The Osiris complex at the very rear or western end of the temple is the focal point of the shrines and sanctuaries. Although there are chapels for other deities in the hypostyle hall, this suite of rooms honours the core of the Osiris religion, and today, you can still get a sense of the piety and devotion that must have gone into its creation. Again, electric lighting and clean air has swept away some of the ambiance, but in this space, the rich, vibrant colours and the smaller, darkened rooms give a sense of some of the ancient worship. As you go through, take a moment to breathe it in, to immerse yourself in a religion more than 5,000 years old. Maybe, with a bit of luck or imagination, you can get a sense of the ancient Osiris ritual. The Osiris complex is the heart of Seti's temple, and yet, for the modern visitor, it remains a slightly overwhelming experience. It is visually and culturally complex, and scholars haven't reached a consensus about all of these symbols. There are still debates about certain elements of the iconography, or what certain references actually mean. Egyptian religion is famously complex, and this hall is a good example of that. Seti has decorated it with all kinds of ritual scenes, but a lot of the time, the significance is hard to pin down. Of course, that's intentional. We should always remember that a room like this was not meant to be visible for the public. Only a select few, the king, the high priests, and privileged acolytes, were supposed to enter this room and see these images. The art and hieroglyphs of the Osiris Hall are for the privileged, those permitted to learn the doctrines and to study the mysteries of the god. 3,000 years later, scholars are doing their best to reconstruct the references from the art, the hieroglyphs, and from other monuments. But without a learned scribe or priest from this religion, many of the nuances are lost to time. The Osiris complex and its imagery 
is a good example of the intentional mystery behind Egyptian religion. These halls at the back of Seti's temple are not a place for public worship or piety. They are a place of deep, privileged secrecy. So the Osiris complex is, arguably, the most important part of Seti's temple. It is also a good place to pause our tour before we move on to the next sections. Very briefly, let me summarise what I've described so far. Seti's temple at Abydos sits at the heart of an ancient religious landscape. From the very earliest days of the Egyptian kingdom, this town and the cemetery was a sacred space for monarchs and gods. The religion of Osiris started in obscure circumstances, but over the millennia, it developed into one of the most important religions in the entire country. Around 1300 BCE, Seti I started to build his own temple for that god. Today, the temple of Seti I at Abydos is a magnificent structure. The decorations on its walls are some of the finest ever carved, and many sections of the temple still preserve their original paints and colours. For the modern visitor, Seti's temple is an overwhelming experience, and one of the highlights of a visit to Egypt. For locals, the temple of Seti is still a sacred space, where people will come to offer prayers and to seek blessings from the divine. So, among all the world's holy centres, this temple is one of the most enduring. And whether your interests are coolly rational or warmly spiritual, you will find something in this temple that helps you commune with aspects of human behaviour. The fear and unknowingness of death, the hope for eternal life, the worship of unseen but powerful forces, and the story of a god who embodies the mysteries of death. Seti's temple is dedicated to Osiris. It is also dedicated to other deities, and to Seti himself. From a certain perspective, this monument is a great memorial temple for Seti as the deity Osiris. Throughout the monument, imagery connects the pharaoh with the gods, and especially the king of the dead. And for the ancients, this temple has certainly achieved its purpose. It has preserved the name and memory of this king, and the deities whom he honoured. Today, when we visit, and speak their names aloud, we connect on some level with those ideas. Hello dear listener, and welcome to Conflicted, a podcast that tells stories of the Islamic past and present to help you make sense of the world today. Hosted by me, Thomas Small, author and filmmaker, and my good friend Eamon Dean, an ex-Al-Qaeda jihadi turned MI6 spy, Conflicted is prepping its fifth season, which is coming to you very soon. And in the meantime, you can sign up to our Conflicted community. Subscribe to Conflicted wherever you get your podcasts.